The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So, in Zen's Eternal Life, Reverend Master Jiu translated Dogen's Chief Cook Instructions. And in it, he talks about how he met a chief cook who actually changed the way he looked at his practice and at Buddhism. He said that that chief cook really helped him to understand the, the character and the discipline of Buddhism. I'd like to read a poem that's in that Chief Cook's instructions. It, the poem is by Secho in, in the monastic precepts. And the poem says, one, seven, three, five, Nothing may be dependent upon by any universe. Night comes, and the moon floods the water with light. Within the dragon's jaws, I find many exquisite jewels. Now, Dogen came upon that verse after he had met the Chinese cook, the chief cook. But he said that that verse summarized was a good summary of, or alignment of the chief's cook instructions to him. So please keep that verse in mind. I'm going to be looking at parts of it throughout this Dharma talk. About 10 minutes past the midnight hour on the early morning of October 5th, I awoke with severe pain in my left arm. So I got up and thought, well, maybe I'm having a tummy ache. And I was at Fugen, which is our hermitage, and it's quite isolated. And I went downstairs and got some tummy relief. And, of course, my body said, are you kidding? (laughs) That's not what the problem is. (laughs) And so I went back upstairs by flashlight um, and... Uh, sat down in the bedroom. There's a blue recliner. So I sat in the blue recliner. And the chest, my chest was getting more and more painful. It was a really intense pain. So I, I sat in the chair. I turned on the light next to the chair. And I said the Sangha verse, which, as most of you know, is, is the verse when we wish to be contrite. And it's a good thing to say when we're in trouble and something difficult is going on. It's an opening to, you know, what's happening with us. So then it got worse. <laughs> and at one point, the pain was so excruciating, and I said, I looked up, and I said, I don't think I can handle this much longer. And, 
and then I passed out. Oh, and I asked for help. That's the most important part. I almost forgot it. I asked for help. And, and then I passed out. And passing out was the help, believe me. <laughs> so um, when I awoke, I wasn't sure where I was. And I was uh, kind of in a, uh, the room was all golden, and I wasn't sure. I, I, I thought I might have died. I thought I might be in a waiting room. The walls were all white, and, and I, <laughs> I thought, where am I? And then I realized, oh, I saw a scroll on the wall, and I recognized, and I said, oh, I'm at Fugan. And... Um, come back to that line in the poem I read, nothing may be dependent upon by any universe. That, an aspect of that line can be the mind of no mind, where you're just in what's going on and you're open to that. And you say, oh, I don't know what's happening, but it's all all right. There was nothing wrong with what was going on. I felt safe. It was okay. The fact that the room was so bright, I think, that reflects the line, night comes and the moon floods the water with light. It's an aspect of it, I think. Anyway, many things happened. I went to the hospital eventually. I got flown to Mercy Reading Hospital. I was in the hospital for five days and I came back to the Abbey. And though things were uh, often opportunities to practice patient endurance, if you've ever been in a hospital, it's, it's a great place to practice patient endurance. Um, but I was bright-minded. I felt uh, grateful to be alive. And, and I was really deeply grateful for all the kindness of, uh, of beings around me, all the help we get, all the merit was, that was being offered, I was deeply grateful for now, before I went to Fugan, probably a w- the week before I had this dream, and what it's a dream I call a teaching dream. You know, it's something you go, oh, remember this. This is important. And I'm just going to share the dream with you. I don't usually talk about my dreams in a Dharma talk. But anyway, um, it's very germane to the situation. So I, I was in this dream, and I was walking down a street in a city, and I was a monk. I was in my robes, and um, I saw this Afro-American man laying on the sidewalk, and I was I hesitated, and I oh, how can I help? And um, this woman leaned down her window and said, he's fallen. So I went over to him, and I said to him, how may I help you, friend? And he said to me, my consciousness is inconsequential. And I laughed in the dream. <laughs> I said, oh, if you know your consciousness is inconsequential, you don't need my help. <laughs> so I stepped back and these EMTs came. And they said to him, you are never alone. We are always here to help you. And then I woke up. And I knew when I woke up that that, what the EMTs were saying was for me too. 
it's like it's for all of us and that's why I wanted to share it we are never alone we're always being helped I think that's really a critical and important thing that we it's helpful to remember and I think it could be summarized by the saying dying is safe and and if you get nothing else out of the Dharma talk if you remember dying is safe. I think that's a good thing to take with you because it's true. Actually, living is safe, but that's much harder to see in a lot of work. Um, so when I first came back to the Abbey, it was very clear to me that I could barely do anything. I was on a very short leash. In fact, I walked down the hall at the Bodhidharma Hall twice and, and realized, oh, that was too much, you know. So it, it was, oh, okay, you've got a very short leash here. You've got to be careful. That's okay. I was bright-minded. It was all right. I just knew. i just take my time, build up. Soon it became apparent that the building up was going to be a lot slower than I thought. This is what I mean about being on a short leash. You're always kind of thinking, oh, I can do that. And then, oh, no, I can't do that. And still I was bright-minded about it. But after a certain point, I started to get down. It was so obvious how limited my activities had to be. And so many of the things I did in the monastery were, quote-unquote, taken away from me. That's, that's not what happened. They, other people just assumed responsibility. But that's how the mind frames it, or my mind framed it. So I had, I, 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 that's part of what I had to train with, was seeing this in a different way. It, it, was, um, it was that acceptance. Reverend Master made it clear to me that the monastery just completely valued my being here irrespective of what I could or couldn't do. And yet that, while I appreciated that, it didn't help the loss I was feeling from not being able to do. And I had to work with that. That was my work. Um, You know, eventually we have to let um, the way we see our life go. That's what training is all about. That's what meditating is all about. We have to just let it go. I was on a hike in the Tetons before I became a monk, probably a year before I became a monk. And I was hiking alone, and I was in this huge meadow, and there were all these elk rutting, and there were these antelopes that were grazing right by the road. So I got out and I was just looking at them and just in awe of animals all around me. And I saw this one pronghorn, a female pronghorn, and she had an injured leg and she was walking with a limp. And I watched her and I saw she was so nervous. She was so frightened. Her life was on the line. And I relate that at the time I could I was in deep sympathy with her and and felt for her angst because 
It was so apparent. You keep up with the herd or you get preyed upon. So why I'm talking about this is that this actually relates to how you feel sometimes when you're very seriously ill, is you feel you can't keep up. And it's almost a biological response to what's going on. And so I, I find that helpful to recognize that. Oh, okay, we want to be a certain way, and we can't. And then we feel this inside. Oh, I'm not, I can't, hey, I can't do what I used to do. And it causes stress. And that's okay. It's okay. Part of our training is being and seeing those things that go on within us. <laughs> the mind of not knowing sometimes means you don't know what, where you're going. And it's not easy. So, uh, now, one of the things I saw early on in this period of not knowing, of where am I going, of everything's unmoored, was that all of a sudden I had a lot of space in my life. And because I was unable to fill it by doing things. And that space actually was very valuable. It was an openness that was extremely helpful and which, quite frankly, I am still exploring. In all honesty, I was nervous about that space. There was a certain nervousness about it because it was unknown. And I just have to, this is an ongoing process, so it's not a done deal. Maybe it'll never be a done deal because it's not supposed to be. But I... I have to be with that, not understanding it, but recognizing its value, sensing its value. I was face-to-face with the question in a life of selfless service, what's the point of someone who can do very little? And who needs to rest the majority of their time? Well, you do when you're sick. You need to rest. But there was this, oh, well, I don't want to just rest for the rest of my life. However, I think that question of who needs to rest was actually um, a diversion because what I really need to do is just pay attention to the space that's opened into my life and to explore it. It's hard to be physically limited when we are aware of how hard our fellow monks are working. That's just hard. I remember when I was a layperson and I was really sick one year. It was very hard then too because everything fell on my husband and my daughter. And I was concerned about that. Okay, that's legit. We understand that. But we can't make a difference. We can't change it. And... And actually, I've never been good at resting. Never. All my life, I've worked. I've, I've, I've done things. I've had a very active life. Very active. And all of a sudden, to be resting, I, I don't know what to do with it. 
Rosemary Dyke, when I was a layperson and I got sick, she gave me the best piece of advice. She said, lay on the couch and pretend you're resting. <laughs> she knew me. <laughs> anyway, this is being in the dragon's jaws. This is being pulverized by those sharp teeth and those strong jaws. And it feels like you're being decimated. And perhaps something is being decimated. And that's not necessarily negative. However, it is a dark time. It, it was very hard. Uh, looking up became an unfamiliar concept. And when I did look up, I just saw dead trees or stressed trees. And I, it stressed me. And then uh, <laughs> faith... I, I, I just couldn't remember what faith was or meant, but that's not true, actually. And, and, of course, we all know this, but when you're in a dark place, it's really important to meditate. And meditation, as we all know from practice, it doesn't take away these things. It doesn't make them go away. But it helps you to look at them straight on. And most importantly for me, I'm not a very good meditator. It's always been a challenge for me. But it, I know that it's a moment-by-moment activity where I keep coming back, where I keep returning to the source, to my heart, to my refuge. And that's true for all of us. And that over and over coming back that's so important for meditation is also so important for our life. Still, it's still, right? It still is at, at times dark. I feel out of sync with life, although I'm getting more okay with that. Um, I also seem to be making all kinds of mistakes, just, just, just totally off. And getting, thinking I'm doing the right thing, really doing, you know, trying to listen, be careful, and then all of a sudden I'm flat on my face in the mud, and I've I've probably done completely the wrong thing, and I I've been sitting with that. Why is that happening? Why is it so hard? And I think part of it is, well, we're sick. We're we're just not firing on all. Well. All our pistons aren't firing up there. And, and also that um, everything's changing. It's unfamiliar. And when things are unfamiliar, it, we're more prone to falling. <laughs> falling over, flat on our face. So anyway, there's a lot to learn about that. Now I'm going uh, <clears> to... <throat> talk about a line in a poem called 27 Verses on Mind Training. It was uh, written by a 14th century monk, Buddhist monk, and it's in the appendix of Mother of All Buddhas by Lex Hickson. And I just love that poem. I read it often as an offering for the world. Um, I found it so helpful. And One of the lines from that poem I've been sitting with for a long time and it actually 
came clearer in this, um, in what's going on. And what he said was, at one point, intention is the sole creative force of the universe. And I think, what? You know, the sole creative force of the universe. But what I see now in this, in this time of difficulty is that our intentions are extremely important. If we're making a lot of mistakes, it's really important to see, well, what was our intention behind it? Was I being selfish? Was I being caring? Was I being caring and unskillful? And all of these things are really helpful to look at. So I think that's part of what he's saying is we have to look at our intentions always, all the time, because that's how we create the world we live in. So everything is up for grabs. Everything is being torn apart in a way. And that, I think, is what the line, nothing may be dependent upon by any universe, is also pointing to. Nothing may be dependent upon. Okay, let go. Let's go. It's okay. All right. You know, Reverend Master described a very uh, dark time in her own life where nothing matters, mindfulness is all. And I think that, too, is pointing to the same thing. Nothing matters. It's not a nihilism. It's not a forget it. It's that we have to let it go. We have to hold it in a different way than we've normally held things. And mindfulness is all is incredibly important because we have to be aware. We have to look at what's going on. Now, at one very dark place in this process, it seemed like that my whole life was a waste and that I had just totally done everything wrong. And that actually, that was a really good moment <laughs> because, you know, I just kind of went, oh, well, if that's true, here I am. I need to look at it and, and I can keep transforming. So it, it kind of took the pressure off. And also, though, everything isn't a mess. Everything isn't wasted. Everything has extreme value. And that, too, is really an important part of this feeling. You know, intention is the sole creative force of the universe. It applies in that situation, too. Because my intention intention for much of my life has been desiring to help. I think that's true for all of us. We all wish to help other beings, fundamentally. How can we not wish that? That's what our Buddha nature is. We are Buddha nature. And so I think that was really, really an important help to see that. That was a jewel, part of the jewels. Um, from being in the dragon's jaw. Many jewels that arose during this dark period came from asking questions within or reframing how I looked at things. 
when we can't do anything or we feel the monastery is going like this and doing things and we're not, it's really important to ask, well, how can I help? Seems like an oxymoron. How can you help when you can't do anything? But actually it's really important to ask that because it reframes the way you look at things. Of course you're always helping, irrespective of what we do, what's going on in our life. We're always helping. And um, sometimes that was that's a silent question in a sense. We ask it to our heart or towards our community or towards our friends or towards our world. As we all know, our world could use a little help. And if we're limited or as we're aging or if if we're young and vibrant still, that is our question. And what does it point to is that we're boundless in spirit. There is no limit in spirit to what we can do. And truthfully, bodies come and go, but the spirit is what matters. So um, there was, of course, a, a questioning of what is the purpose of my life. That's good. We should ask that question all the time. We really should. What's the purpose of our life? We're trying to do good. And irrespective of what the body can do, the purpose of our life is the purpose of our life. It doesn't leave because the body can't do something. So you can see that the dragon's jaws can be crunching and tough, but there are all these jewels that are abound for us. And that's true of life. There are all these jewels in our life. You know, the most important thing I think we do in some ways is just offering merit. It's just meditating. Just. Um, reading scriptures. These things are invaluable to other beings and to ourselves. So um, when I was in the hospital, I had a rosary. I, I did the rosary all the time, offering merit for all the people around me, the nurses, the doctors, the housekeeping, everybody, the other patients. That you realize there's just this abundance of offerings you can make and um, have nothing to do with you and everything to do with just being, helping. Um, seeing the bigger picture is really helpful. And that's part of the reframing I was talking about. But seeing the bigger picture helps when we're feeling small down. You know, it helped me to think, well, what? A, think about all the people in the world who are sick, who are really ill. And think about the people who are sick and really ill and, and don't have support or don't have shelter, or don't have food, you know, and it just kind of makes you realize how much you do have. And also to appreciate, you know, healing, as we know, involves steps forward, steps back. Takes It's a step-by-step process, not any... It, it's a slow process. It takes time to heal the body. It takes time to heal ourselves spiritually. We all know that. We've been doing this all our life. And it's important to be patient with that. 
for a long time for a variety of reasons, in part because I saw things when I was a young adult and that impacted me. I saw people dying and and not necessarily dying well, quote-unquote. Um, and by that I think is we all want everyone to die peacefully. And the truth of the matter is not everybody does. But that, I think, doesn't matter because it's the process we go through that's the important thing. But anyway, I always have this question, well, will I be able to die well? And both professionally when I was a layperson and then when I was a monk too, I have studied and pondered that question. In, in The Grace of Dying, the book The Grace of Dying, Kathleen Doling Singh, in her years of hospice care, found that uh, people, as they are dying, may go through a period of crisis where they lose control and everything falls apart. And from that chaos, surrender arises. So we have to surrender to the body falling apart, to becoming dysfunctional, and to suffering indignities. And we keep training with it. And knowing that is knowing our worth, our inherent worth no matter what's going on. It's not of in spite of, it's really, it's just the process. And so we have to, it's an opportunity to come to terms with that. It's, it's surrendering to that is really a wonderful thing, actually. And that's true whether we're living or dying. <laughs> Um, so throughout all these questions and, and difficulties that arise in our life the silver thread of the line from the scripture of great wisdom was, was there and that line is my favorite line O Shariputra form is only pure Pure is all form. There is then nothing more than this. And I love that. There is then nothing more than this. It just simplifies. You, we get distracted. We think all these things. But really, there's nothing more. Everything is pure. So when we meditate, when we work on ourselves or helping others. And that profound truth cannot be torn apart no matter what's going on with us. And that's the most important thing in a way. Now I'd like to read to you before I end this Dharma talk a couple of quotes again from Dogen. Uh, this one is from Shobogenzo, the chapter, well actually the first one too. Uh, was from the Shobogenzo. But anyway, this is from the chapter called Bendoa, which is doing one's utmost in practicing the way of the Buddha. So I'm going to read these two quotes. They're not concurrent. They're at different parts in it. So he says, People are ready. People are already abundantly endowed with the Dharma. 
in every part of their being. But until they do the training, it will not emerge. Unless they personally confirm it for themselves, there is no way for them to realize what it is. But when they give it out to others, it keeps filling their hands to overflowing for, indeed, it makes no distinction between for the one and for the many. When they give voice to it, it flows forth from their mouths like a tide, limitless in its breadth and depth. And then later he says, you must realize that even if all the Buddhas, which are as the immeasurable sands of the Ganges, were all together to exercise their spiritual strength and attempt to gauge the meditation of a single person by means of their awakened Buddha wisdom. They would be unable to reach its boundaries, try as they might to, found, to fathom them. I love that. I love that line because it's saying, you don't know, the, you just your meditation is unfathomable by the Buddha's wisdom. It seems, you know, this is, we all meditate, There's our minds are busy, we're distracted, we're upset, all this stuff, it doesn't matter. Our, our meditation itself is this boundless force for the universe. So I can't think of anything better to talk about, in a sense, these jewels. It seems kind of contrary on the Buddha's enlightenment, the day of the Buddhas of enlightenment. But actually, this is, this is what his enlightenment represents for us, is that he did something about himself, and 2,500 years later, it's still helping beings. It's still helping us. And we're entrusting ourselves to this path of training and that he's guiding us on. And so irrespective of whether we're walking or we're brightly alive or we're brightly dying or we're riding scooters or whatever, we're just manifesting the walking along the path, the shining of the light.